Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. On this episode of Headstrong, I've teamed up with Actors Warehouse. Now, Actors Warehouse is your one-stop shop for building new and existing skills and progressing your career as a performer. Actors Warehouse have some incredible workshops covering everything from audition technique to self-taping at home, Shakespeare, accents, you name it. Actors Warehouse has got you covered, whatever your skill level or ability. As well as these workshops... Actors Warehouse writes, creates and edits personalised showreel scenes. They understand that everyone needs this high quality showreel. It's essential in the industry. And that is why Actors Warehouse take the time to get to know you on a personal level before writing and filming showreel scenes designed to showcase the talent you want casting directors to see. Follow them today on at Actors Warehouse on Instagram and send them a direct message to find out more. Alternatively, you can visit their website, www.actorswarehouse.co.uk. Also, go check out the Headstrong Instagram page because we are running an exclusive competition giveaway for a chance to win a one-on-one workshop with Actors Warehouse completely tailored to your needs. At Headstrong Podcast. My name is Louis Strong and you are listening to Headstrong. Now, this is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of individuals in the public eye, be them actors or comedians, drag queens, you name it. And I sit down with them to have a chat about their lives, uh, their careers, but notably their vulnerabilities. And I do this because I want to learn what they interpret the word headstrong to me. Now, My definition of headstrong is to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. On today's episode of Headstrong is the wonderful actor Blake Harrison. I was introduced to Blake by a mutual friend, Jonah Howard King, a previous guest of the podcast. I sat down with Blake to talk about exactly that. We talked about homeschooling and the difficulties as well as the enjoyments that have come with it, the difficulty of 
children's mental health and, and the wonderful work that his wife is doing towards that, leaving his family behind. Indeed, when he has to go on acting work and, and when that might come in the future. Additionally, I talked to him about his magnificent role as Neil in The Inbetweeners, which of course you will know as the hilarious British comedy. I also had a chat about a few other pieces of work. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Blake. And if you do enjoy the episode, feel free to hit subscribe, give us a rating, and also share it with your family and friends. Every little helps. Blake, thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. How are you, sir? I'm good, mate. I'm very, very good. I, I've just realised I've... Uh, internet, and it should be working now. <laughs> oh, that is the best start to any podcast. That's the perfect start to anything, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, the internet's not working very well, and here we go. There it is. I was going to say, where are you right now? But it seems like you're in some sort of desert with no Wi-Fi. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, very, very close. It's Ken. Uh, so, <laughs> so very close. Um, uh, yeah, no, so just, just at home, as as are everyone, I think. You'd hope so. You would hope so, yeah. But what's your day-to-day routine like then at the moment? I imagine you've got a few early mornings on the cards with your with your young kids. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they will be in with us. It could be any time from six. Sometimes we have a really bad night and it'll be like a one or a three a.m. And, and particularly my son, who's three, will just come barging into the room and get into bed with us or whatever. And he loves to sleep horizontally. He kind of lovingly, but I think very uncomfortably, wants to sleep forehead to forehead with my wife. Uh, <laughs> so he just kind of like nuzzles right into her face. But that leaves me with his feet. And he'll sleep like horizontally. So his feet are just kind of kicking me either in the face or sometimes, you know, a bit lower where it's very tender. He doesn't care. He'll just kick you anywhere. Um, So, yeah, so that's a lot of mornings can be like that. And then you've got obviously the homeschooling and stuff. Um, I was supposed to be working. I was supposed to be starting a job, uh, a a sitcom, um, Kate and Koji, which did its first series like at the very start of lockdown, uh, the first lockdown uh, last year. And we were supposed to be moving on to series two of that. And unfortunately, because of all, you know, with, with Kate and Koji, there's, there's a, a much older cast than what you would get in a lot of shows. And um, they thought it was just too risky. And they, you know, and I think they made absolutely the right decision with all these new variants flying around and everything that, um, you know, we had to just postpone things. And it could be postponed for a very long time. I, I don't really know. It's, everything's kind of up in the air at the moment. But I think, you know, morally, the, the right decision was made because you've got to protect people. At the end of the day, it's, it's just a TV show and you can't have, you know, 70-year-olds coming into work and then, you know, really putting their lives at risk, I think, for, for, for a TV show. So, yeah, so we, we've postponed that until further notice and that means that I'm now just at home with the kids a lot doing the homeschooling and and everything else that goes with it. How have you found those the past 12 months then? Have you been heavy on the homeschooling because I know um I've spoken to a few people on 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 this podcast who have children and they started very very strong at the start of the first lockdown, you know, with a structure and on board, getting the kids through some school and now they're just like Do you know what I, I respect all the teachers out there. This is not this is not my strength. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, well, I mean, we're lucky because they've moved on now to like, it's 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 still a burden on us because the kids are so young, they can't just be doing stuff on the computer. But there are some Zoom sessions. So the teachers will be holding a few Zoom sessions. So you get a little bit of respite in comparison, excuse me, to what you did um, 
in the first lockdown where it kind of felt very much like it's just all on you. You're, you're getting some emails of work sent in and I'm like, I haven't done any maths other than, you know, a little bit of change in my pocket for gosh, I don't know, like 20 years or whatever it is. So, uh, so yeah, so that was a bit of a, a wake up call, uh, trying to be the teacher. But, uh, but the thing you see now, whenever there's the zooms, it's so funny because there'll be, you know, like 20, 30 kids, whatever it is on, on the zoom chat. And the teacher will be trying to talk about something and all of a sudden they'll go, yes, you know, Ethan, what is it? It's my grand's birthday. Uh, is it Ethan? Brilliant. Well, back to, you know, we're, we're doing some modification <laughs> today. So back to, yes, Sarah, what is it? Um, my mum has a pet budgie and it's called Trevor. And it's like, thank you. Brilliant. Really well done. Now, can we move on to the, the patience that they have is, is unbelievable. You know, uh, I, I don't think I could do it. Um, how do you find the balance then uh, between yourself and your and your your wife um, with with the the um, the homeschooling? Because you know, is it is it kind of fifty fifty? Because I know some people probably have strengths in certain aspects of it, and then uh, your your wife perhaps in others. How have you found that together? Is it has there been moments where you're ripping your hair out? No, not too much. Um, I think that uh, because my daughter is only seven we're both very capable of doing it. It's not like they're Mm. coming up towards GCSEs and we're both looking at each other like, well, maybe like you handle the English, I'll handle the maths. But I mean, we're both struggling here. It's pretty early days, so we we can both deal with it. And generally speaking, there's no set plan. It's just, you know, when my daughter says she doesn't understand or doesn't get help, if one of us is doing one thing, the other one will deal with it. You know, it's, it's just kind of it's just quite free flowing and it's just whoever's available and I don't mind doing it. I quite enjoy being there to, to help her, I guess, because I, I do foresee a, a somewhere in the near future where she'll be asking me for help and I'll be going, I haven't got a clue. I don't know. I can't help you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, um, I, I like being the one that can, can help her and seem like, Oh, my, my dad knows what he's doing. That's great. I suppose this homeschooling thing has actually put, put parents in a position that actually they probably would never have experienced because they are never in, in the school classroom. And actually it's probably, as you say, actually it's a new experience for you and you're actually quite enjoying it. Um, you know, that extra time and that extra experience, I suppose. Yeah, which is which is lovely, but also, I mean, you can really start to get an idea of what they might be like. I mean, obviously, it's going to be very, very different dynamic what it is at home with like a laptop or whatever than it will be um, actually at school, surrounded by their friends, all that. It's obviously going to be a completely different dynamic. However, you, I can see my daughter responding in class and uh, not being afraid to put her hand up and and you know give an answer, and and, and I'm really proud of that, and I I, I like. To, to see that she's putting in the work and giving it a go and being confident in herself and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a nice little insight to how they might be at school, which I've, I've quite enjoyed. Now we're talking in, in yet another lockdown and we we're talking as two just about grown men uh, and, and having a fairly rational conversation. Um, but you know, we often do forget that actually, these children specifically at that age might not be able to fully comprehend what's going on. And we're chatting at the end of children's mental health week. Uh, and I briefly mentioned your wife there, but she's doing something pretty, pretty wonderful and marvelous at the moment. Do you want to ex- just explain what that is? Yes. So no, she, she's created um, these guided meditations and like sleep journeys for children uh, called your floating bed, which she's put out as podcasts. And it just started because 
my daughter, who's uh, seven, she she was struggling to sleep during the first lockdown. I think that they can't always articulate what they're hearing on the radio and what maybe mummy and daddy are talking about every now and again and why they can't see grandparents and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of means their minds can't, you know, just just calm down really. And um, so when they're going to sleep at night, they're, they're struggling. And my wife created these kind of guided meditations and sleep journeys where it'd be like your beds floated off to this different location and you're exploring that. And uh, she's, um, she's done a really fantastic job of helping her get to sleep, helping her calm her fizzy mind. And um, she's then spoken to other parents at the school that have had similar issues and uh, and then decided to create this podcast, which is obviously free for people to to use. And hopefully it can help young kids get into a nice restful sleep if they are struggling. But also it's just a good calming tool. You know, she uses different meditative and mindfulness techniques to to just help children calm down, de-stress. And I think that's a, a lovely thing because we forget that, you know, children can get stressed out as well, even, even young kids. And, you know, from my, I don't really feel like as a teenager or even maybe in my early twenties, we were really talking about mental health or, um, or stress in the way that we are now. And so if it's becoming quite a new subject to talk about over the last few years for adults, I think it's very easy to forget that actually no kids can deal with that as well. And we need to start focusing on being able to, de-stress and calm ourselves down and using different mindfulness techniques from a very very early age because i think we'll just all be much calmer better people if, if we've started that thing at an early age yeah it's a it's a real challenge for for children because i remember when i was a kid and you wouldn't be able to fully articulate and explain what you were feeling but you know you'd go you know to the teacher or to your to my mom i'd be like you know i've got something in my tummy i don't know what it is and you know your mum would explain it as butterflies but you know now as an adult you'd learn that that is you know a mixture of emotions anxiety and things like that and it's very difficult for them to understand what it is so i think what your wife is doing is absolutely brilliant and surprising that it's actually you know not really i i I haven't heard of um or any children's meditation um or, or you know sleep um aid you know of course there's there's plenty out there for adults do you do you use any yourself um, you know, I, I don't massively, but I think it's just because I just fall asleep quite easily. <laughs> I'm so tired because the kids get you up and everything. And then it's just go, go, go. Like another thing when we're talking about the lockdown, you know, I've got a few mates that are single or they're just you know, uh, in, in couples, but without kids and stuff like that. And they're just like, oh, I'm bored. I need to think of something to do. I've started learning a language. I've picked up the guitar. I'm doing all these things. And I'm like, it gets to about eight in the evening when I know the kids are asleep and then that's when my day kind of starts and I'm like then I can get something done or I might just be so tired I just want to sit down and watch tv and that'll be me for the next couple of hours and then it gets to about 10 o'clock at night and me and my wife just look at each other and go oh we should be we should have been in bed already we're so tired and we just like barely get off the sofa you know stuff like it sounds lame but that is just how it is with with young kids you know especially when they don't respect you know morning time (laughs) absolutely i mean there is no awareness of that at all if they're awake they're awake and i was an early bird when i was a kid you know five o'clock on the dot so i I apologize to my parents actually on a platform now (laughs) you should do regularly do (laughs) exactly (laughs) now i mean of course uh, you said that you don't necessarily do that um but but you know being an actor comes with its own 
stresses um, as well as its amazing benefits. What do you do then to to stay relaxed and, and kind of unwind? Um, do you know, it's, it's a tricky one because, I mean, our profession is really tough for things like uh, mental health, I think, at times, because you're dealing with uh, a constant kind of uncertainty. Um, but I think that with our profession, it's very important to remember that things can really change at the drop of a hat. And so whenever things are looking bad or you're feeling disheartened about the industry in general, I think that it's very important to just be positive as easy as, you know, it's easier said than done, but, but knowing that something generally will pop up, that there will always be something it's, it's very rare that you're going to go like an entire year with no auditions whatsoever. You know, things will come in and something will happen and maintaining. And it's taken me a while to realize that I suppose probably because I've been acting for a long enough time now that I've gone through so many moments in my career where I've gone, Oh, I've finished this great job. Something great's around the corner. Then nothing comes for months. And then you get into that really low stage of, Oh, well, is this it? I don't know what's happening now is no one going to want me again and then something always does come in and that's happened so many times now that I think just with experience you gain knowledge that there always will be something it's just about staying calm and and maintaining some positivity with it so before we dive into your career then so what you just it sounds like you just have an ability to kind of keep the faith because I know that when I really did start out you know you'd have these audition processes and you know you wouldn't hear back on 99% of them you don't get any feedback yep. and actually it's very disheartening for an actor so as you say a very oh, tough thing yeah. so you've just it sounds like you've kind of found a way to almost cope with it um you know and just it's part of the parcel it's yeah it's again i think i haven't found any kind of magical way though it that that's just it's happened so many times it's just experience and, and resilience um and resi- resilience yeah um yeah but it's, once you've been through something enough times and been through the real lows of it again it's it's not even about being a resilient person or necessarily building a resilience it's it's just about well i know this i've been here before and that's you know for for younger people out there that that might be listening and might be going through that moment I think most actors, I definitely have been through those moments of, oh, well, I think this is it now. No one's interested or, you know, my career's going down a path. I don't necessarily want it to and I wanted it to go somewhere else. But eventually something always does come around. I mean, I had situations recently where I've had two jobs uh, uh, postponed due to COVID um, and they postpone is kind of a loose term. You never know whether it's going to mean it eventually gets cancelled depends how long that postponement will be everything's up in the air you don't know but um but then i've had a few self-tapes come in and i know that if i was working on those jobs i wouldn't have have been able to dedicate myself as fully as i did to those self-tapes so now if i were to be lucky and land one of those self-tapes i know that well that thing happened for a reason the reason that got cancelled is so that i could do this self-tape and get that job and if i don't get those self-tapes I'm sure something else will will come in. But again, that's that is just the experience of having been there enough times. There's no magic 
thing <laughs> that I can that I can I can't impart any kind of magic knowledge or cheat code to this or anything. <laughs> it, it's it's just once you've been there enough times, you do realize no, no, this this is just what happens. It happens every now and again. You just get through it. And I suppose my lucky thing is that I I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful and beautiful family, and my kids very much don't give a shit about <laughs> what's going on in my career because they're seven and three and they're just interested in dad i want to touch the ceiling pick me up or dad do that do that thing where you walk into the wall and it makes me laugh and that's you know that that's that's sort of and there's no better um i suppose equalizer in a lot of ways or a thing that brings you back down to earth than than kids and probably family in general really yeah, I was going to say you do. You talk wonderfully about your family, so that actually leads me on to what I was going to uh, kind of ask you. Of course, COVID is tricky, but there are of course times when you do need to go away for work, uh, and often for long periods of time where you don't see your family. Yeah. How 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 do, how do you prepare for that? Um, you know, the coming days and perhaps weeks before you do leave, and then what 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 are your strategies when you are away? Because of course, you know, you're you're a family man. The way that you're talking about your family is very heartwarming. It's it gets hard. It getting it's getting harder and harder. When I when my daughter was first born, uh, I was in the middle of a job where I was doing uh, ridiculously long hours, and it was also quite far away from where I lived. So you know, it's like it'd be a two hour drive in the morning, work all day, and then a two hour drive home in the evening. So I didn't get to see a huge amount of her for like the first six weeks of her life, and then shortly after that, I went off and filmed the second in between us film, which was in Australia. And, and my wife and uh, my daughter came with us. My daughter was about eight weeks old and she came with us to Australia for the first kind of three, four weeks of filming and then went back home and I was away from them for about four weeks. And um, that's, that was just kind of how life was to begin with. And then as time's gone on, obviously you bond more and more and more and you spend more and more time and the family grows and you spend less time away because maybe your jobs are more in London or you're, you're, you're working less or anything like that. And so now I'm in a situation where, especially with the COVID situation where I, I've worked just fleetingly across the last kind of year or so, um, I've barely been away. And uh, now if a situation comes up where someone offers me a job in another country, I'm going to take it because it's my job and that's, that's what you do and that's how you provide. But I think it will probably be the hardest it's ever been for me to be away from the family. And I mean, thank God for things like, like FaceTime and, and Zoom and, and, and stuff like that, you know, because at least you get an element of it. You can stay in touch a bit. But again, as much as the kids say they miss you, my son is only three, so he'll FaceTime for a couple of minutes and then all of a sudden you'll just see darkness because he's put you down on the sofa and he's, you know, <laughs> run off to play with some cars or something like that. You know, you, daddy's getting boring now. Um, but at least it's it's something, you know, we're living in the, the best age we possibly could have done for, for connectivity, uh, you know, abroad and, you know, over long periods of time and stuff like that. So I think that's... That's all you can do, really. But it's definitely a, it's not easy being away from the family at all. And, and if your wife doesn't pick up the phone, at least you can put on one of her meditation podcasts. Well, that's it. I can listen to her voice and go to sleep to her voice. <laughs> now, let's, um, 
I mean, let's have a look at um, a bit more of your career in detail. I, I definitely want to rewind. So let's pre pre children, pre pre yeah. even acting as a career. Let's, when was let's, that? That feels so long ago. Yeah, that was my you're probably head. thinking oh, it was much darker back then when I could sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so you 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 were born and you're from Peckham, but no one in your yeah. your family is from a particular dramatic past, and they don't have a dramatic oh. history necessarily. So, what was it that influenced you to embark on such a, a hobby? Uh, I honestly don't know. Uh, it was like some I don't know. I just always wanted to do it. I was always driven to do it, and I always I, I, maybe foolishly and naively kind of believed it would happen in a weird way. Um, that I was just quite driven and quite, it was like there was no other option, which again, now that I am a dad and I look back on, on things, I think it's quite scary. And if my kids ever said to me, you know, dad, I want to get into acting or do anything like that. I'd be like, yeah, that that's great. But could you go to university first and study for something, you know, get, get a backup plan or something. But because, uh, you know, my, my mum had no real idea of, of the industry. She tried to learn a few bits and bobs to help me out when I was a kid. And I said, I wanted to do it, but, she was just very lovely and said, you know, do whatever you want to do. I, I do remember my, my first year of um, uh, trying to get into drama schools didn't quite work out for me. And my mum was saying, well, why don't you go to a university and do the, do uh, drama at a university? I was like, it's different. I, I don't, I didn't necessarily want to study um, drama in the kind of university style syllabus of it. I, I wanted to go to a drama school and perform and act and learn how to be an actor rather than study you know greek tra- the, the history of greek tragedy and all those kind of things that you, i mean that i'm sure are very beneficial to people but for me it just wasn't what i what i was drawn to at all i wanted to do the practical skills of like just learning by doing yeah, that's interesting because I, I went to uni to do drama. So you're yeah. exactly right. Um, luckily, I, I, I had was signed with my agent when I came out of school, but I, I was very yeah. conscious as well. My agent said, go to university, actually more so for the... Um, the kind of life experience perhaps more than yeah. the, the the training because i think what you you, you be- gain and benefit and I, I know that you'll be able to talk talk about it more um from acting school is you literally are whittled down to your your core and then you build up all your techniques and abilities as an actor yeah i mean i i don't feel like we had too much of that um at east 15 i feel like it was because I heard a lot about this at drama schools. Uh, and again, you always hear things and you're like, is that mm-hmm. really true? And all this Rumors. stuff. There's all sorts of about like, you know, they, they break you down and they build you in like the Rada mold or the Lambda mold or whatever it is. <laughs> they do. I'm like, but do they really? I mean, maybe they do. I, don't, I mean, I've met enough people from Rada that just seem like themselves. You know? <laughs> I don't, they're not like, I, I wouldn't, go oh that person must have trained up rather because they behave like this but you hear all these stories and stuff but i definitely didn't feel like they did too they gave you great techniques what i felt with drama school that i still think is a fantastic thing is not only do you just work on brilliant writing a lot of the time which when you get out of drama school do you realize is a real privilege because you're not always working on on fantastic writing and, and terrific playwrights work um but uh, you you gain a lot of tools for the tool belt. And that's what I think it is. And I think some of them you discard and go, I don't need that. Or at least I don't need that for this job. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of things that you learn that I just go, oh, that's great. I'll keep that in the back pocket. Because 
it's more for when I'm struggling because I think a lot of acting can be very instinctive. Um, but sometimes you'll come across a part where it's, it doesn't, your natural instincts aren't always correct for it because the part's not you, which is why you got into acting in the first place. Cause you don't want to play you all the time. Um, and so some of the things that you're taught can be fantastic for helping to break down a script, break down a character and, and little tricks and tools to get into either a physicality or a, a, a voice or just a, you know, a logic for that character, which I, I think is, is brilliant and really, really useful. And I still use now a few of those things. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, I'm intrigued to ask you, I, I want to talk about a few other things, but when you prepare for a job or a role or even an audition and stuff, you, you must have, like, like anyone would, you prepare your character, but it's so good to have that toolbox because when you get on set, the set might completely change how you perform. The other actor, you know, the way that you interact with other people might have to now be completely changed from all the preparation that you've done purely because, you know, things are just different. And that, that is so important about um, drama school, I, I, I imagine, um, for you, because, you know, as much preparation as you can do for a role and you walk onto set, it could just be all out the window from there on. And you've got to really, as you say, use a bit of instinct and, um, and think on your feet almost. Yeah, as yeah. So I mean, it's definitely it's never it's never exactly how you imagine it to be, and so and so you always have to have something in your back pocket, and whether that's you know being instinctive because the the scene is. I mean, rewrites speaks particularly with comedy. You know, you can get rewrites on the day, and you're like, oh shit! Well, I've I've done all this work, and I thought I knew where all the beats were, and now you're telling me that this this and this joke don't work. You got to do it like this now. You're like, okay, that's all going to be instinctive, you know. But then you have other moments where, um, you know, you for some reason a scene is either not working, and a lot of the time the reason it's not working will be something technical. It'll be the sun's in the wrong place, and you know that there's not enough cloud cover to match where you the way you shot something beforehand, and you realize you've been doing this scene for hours and hours and hours, and you you're slightly losing it because. You know, unlike with a piece of theatre that you do over months and months and months, you're doing that once, twice a day. But when you've been doing the same scene for hours and hours and hours, sometimes you can feel like, oh, I've just kind of got into a, a rhythm of this and I'm not, I'm no longer really, really listening and reacting. I'm just going, this is how I've decided to do this. I'm going to do it like that. And things like, I've had it before where I've felt myself get into that frame of mind particularly if, if i've got long speeches or monologues or anything like that and like i've got to get the actioning out here and just kind of give it a little something just to give it a bit more color or or something in, in the speech and again that's where drama school comes in and it's it's helpful and if i hadn't had gone to drama school i wouldn't be able to do that and i would find myself going this is losing something and i don't know how to improve it but because i've been to drama school i feel like i i know how to do that so let's let's look at drama school then. At what stage did it go from drama is something that I love doing to this is now going to be my career and something that I can make money from? Um, well, it was it was always going to be my career. I was always going to like, from a very early age. I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I did um, again. My mum was really brilliant and like got me into different um, little andrammy things and uh, stage schools uh, on like the weekends and stuff like that that had agents attached. So you would do a little bit of work here and there and some jobs and, and stuff like that. So I did get paid to act from an early age, but sparingly every now and again. Um, 
And the plan was always, I, I went to the Brit school when I was 14. So I was always still going down that path. And then I went to East 15 after that. So again, still going down that path. Um, and I, I didn't really think twice about kind of oh, where the money's coming from or any of, of this stuff. Cause I always just found a way of finding any old job here and there to just kind of tide me over. You know, I was, I, I remember the first job I did out of drama school was um, uh, an unpaid play through uh, like casting called pro or, or whatever it's called now. And um, I, I was sticking labels on the insides of buses, you know, like security labels. Yeah. You got to stick those on the inside of both that says like, watch out for suspect packages and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. So between the hours of about 8 PM and 4 AM, I was sticking labels on these buses in the, in the bus garages. Um, and, uh, then at 8am I'd wake up in the morning after having about three, four hours sleep at most, and then go into rehearsals for this unpaid play. And I was like, I just found a way to make it, to make it work. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where that kind of, uh, just belief came from because I have to say now I probably believe in myself less <laughs> in a weird <laughs> way, even though I've achieved more. You, oddly, I don't know if like maturity has caught up with me slightly, and I'm like, what were you doing, you moron? <laughs> um, but I just kind of was like, nah, it'd be all right. Something will happen. I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll do that play. I'll find a way of earning money. Don't worry about that. But I'll do the play. Um, whereas now I'd be like, where's the money coming from before I commit to something? Um, but yeah, that's just, I suppose that's just the naivety and kind of blissful ignorance of, of youth, I guess. This episode is sponsored by Actors Warehouse. Now, Actors Warehouse is your one-stop shop for building new and existing skills and progressing your career as a performer. They have one-to-one -one workshops and they are the perfect way to build up the skills you need to succeed as a performer. The best part is you can tailor the workshop to specifically hit the areas you need work on or to improve. Actors Warehouse also do personalized showreels and they are the perfect way for you to take control of the way casting directors view your talent. Are you stuck in a typecast? Or have you always wanted to take on a certain character or role and never had the chance to? Well. This is the perfect, highly collaborative opportunity for you to explore what you can do as an actor and fast track your way into the eyes of a casting director. Now, Actors Warehouse puts the client at the forefront of their business, and that is exactly why they take the time to get to know you and your unique requirements as an actor before delivering their one-to-one -one workshops or creating these personalized showreel scenes. And I believe this personal touch is one of the reasons that they're so fantastic. Go follow them today on Instagram at Actors Warehouse and send them a message to find out more. Or visit their website www.actorswarehouse.co.uk And to help you through these trying times, Actors Warehouse have extended their sale indefinitely until whenever this lockdown is lifted. With script writing from as little as £20 per scene and up to 50% off workshops, Actors Warehouse understand the importance of keeping prices low, so go check out their website. Well, let's 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 jump into um, let's jump into the in betweeners then, because of course success came your way, and that is wonderful. But what I want to know is let's let's paint the picture before before you got the role, and I want to hear about that. The email for the audition. Um, well, who were you going up for? Who was what was the email? Who was the email from? How did you hear about the show and the audition? And then how long? From audition to bagging the role. 
Okay, so um, so I left drama school with no agent. Uh, and then again, as I say, the first job I did, was I signed up for Casting Call Pro and got that unpaid play, uh, sticking labels on the insides of buses. Then when the play started running, I couldn't do the buses anymore because uh, it was, you know, a night During job. your shift. So I, during my, it was during my shift on stage, guys. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, was, uh, I was like, well, now how can I pay the bills? So I started... Do it. I did like this kind of trial week at like a, a call center where you have to um, do like a week's training before they pay you so that you can then basically cold call people for charities and go, you know, you're donating to this charity. Could you donate a little bit more, please? Is that all right? Um, and uh, I remember on my, my third day of this trial where I hadn't been paid for that, and obviously I'm not getting paid for the play, getting a phone call from Spotlight. So I was only on Spotlight's books at the time. I wasn't, didn't have an agent or anything. And they said, oh, we, there's this big audition um, that, uh, you know, for young lads going to this sitcom called Baggy Trousers. And I was like, well, okay, fine. Uh, but I then was like, well, I've got not really any money. And I remember phoning my mum and saying, I've got about a day or two left of this trial thing at the call centre, but it's going to clash with an audition. And if I go to the audition, I'm going to have to repeat the trial period and I've got no money. And she just went, that you've spent all this time and loads of student debt and everything going to drama schools. You're going to turn down one of like your first paid audition, potentially paid like audition thing because you're working at course. Like, just go to the bloody audition. Just do something else will come along, you know? Um, and so I was like, all right, fair play, mum. Cheers. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> went, went to the audition. And, and again, it was like a, it was like that one of those classic scenes from like um, uh, th- those old musicals where, uh, everyone's every man and his dog is going up for this part and they're all in the waiting rooms. They've got like a number on their shirt, like they're about to run a marathon or something to go into a casting room. I mean, there wasn't actually numbers on our shirts, but there was about 13 lads from my drama school there. This place was absolutely rammed and there was sides all on the table that you were told to pick. And they had sides for Will, Simon, Neil and Jay. And I remember looking at them going, right, well, I'm probably more of a Simon, hopeless romantic type. Then, I might be able to do Jay. I might be able to do Will, but what I'm definitely not is the dumb one. So I'm not going to look at Neil because I'm not going to waste my time. And then I remember getting into the room and you didn't pick who you were going to be. The casting director just looked at you and just went, you read Simon, you read Will, you read Jay. And then pointed to me and went, you read Neil. And my heart sank. I was like, oh shit. I've I've made a big error immediately because I haven't looked at this part enough. And somehow I was able to kind of muddle my way through that audition to get a recall, uh, like come back in the afternoon type thing. And then I was like, right, now let me look at this character properly. And then it was a case of come back in the afternoon, do that. Okay, come back in a few days, do that. Come back in the afternoon again. And there must have been about six auditions over the course of about a week and a bit. I remember talking to the writers later on once we were on set and stuff, and they were saying we were so up against it. We'd been auditioning in Edinburgh and other places like off the back of the fringe and all this kind of stuff for nine months because they'd also done like a pilot with a different cast and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really long process and I got into it right at the end of, of that process. And as I say, it's just audition, 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 recall, recall, recall. And, and then thankfully I remember uh, being at home with my brother and um, we were playing a uh, pro evolution soccer and the phone rang and uh, I was like, oh, hello. And I was like, oh, it's Nadira, the, the casting director. I just wanted to let you know you, you've got the part. 
I was like, oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And I hung up the phone and my brother just turned around to me. He's about four years younger than me. And so he would have been about, I don't know, like 17, 18 at the time. And he just turned around and looked at me and went, did you get that part then? I was like, yeah, yeah, I got that part. And he went, brilliant. Can we carry on with the Master League now? <laughs> and it just like, just crashed back down to her. Like, obviously none of us knew what it meant. It was just like, oh, Blake's going to do some acting and he's actually going to get paid for this one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just funny how he was like, oh, elation. And then like, oh yeah, no, let's, let's carry on getting Fulham to the premiership or whatever it was we were doing at the time. Um, yeah. Oh, brilliant. That, that audition process, that, that's, um, as you said, that was a serious, like they were really cramming it in then clearly, you know, like I can only imagine like it can't, they can only stretch it so far. And they were like, right, we actually now need to actually cast this show. Um, and, yeah. and, and it's so good that you popped into the picture then. So how long from the audition process till you started the first, the first block? I don't, I, I can't fully remember, but I think it was pretty quick. Was it? I reckon, I reckon my first audition could have been maybe three weeks before starting rehearsals or starting to shoot. Even I know we, we had a week of rehearsals before filming. Can I you, know that much. Can, oh, go on. No, no, no. What were you going to say? Well, so um, you, I assume that the last audition, you, you four would probably have all been together. But do you remember your first conversations with some of the guys um, and your first impressions with them? I'm curious to hear what you thought. I don't. It was so long ago. <laughs> I, I remember more about the audition. I was probably so kind of nervous and in my head because I think by that point, I probably knew I was close. Because what I remember, again, was that that day started off and it felt to me like the other three were probably cast because it was me and two other actors that kept alternating going in with the three of them. So I was like, they've clearly been cast here. Um, and then one guy didn't come back and then it was just me and one of us. So we were kept alternating. And then I think they might've switched some things around, which I weren't expecting, like made him play a different role or something that I can't really remember. But, um, but then obviously I ended up getting the, the job, but then the first week of rehearsals now I, I i don't remember a huge amount about it but i remember ian morris one of the writer producers saying that the the moment he thought it would work well is on that day two or three of the auditions when he saw we had like a little photo together or something and he saw all four of us lined up together and he said that we just all looked so kind of just funny stood there next to each other <laughs> just with our little faces and, uh, and maybe the height discrepancies as well and all that kind of stuff. And he just thought this oddly could work <laughs> because just of how we all look together. Um, so yeah, but that, that's what I do remember about the rehearsal period, actually that I remember one day in particular feeling like I'd done a bad job. And I didn't feel any kind of job security or anything. I was like, I don't know what's going on. They could get rid of me. I have no idea how this works. Um, so uh, I remember them saying, right, well, we, we'll go for lunch. We'll take you for lunch. Like the two writers said, we, we, we'll take you boys for lunch. And I remember saying, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm going to stay and do, do some stuff. I'm, I'm all right. I'm good. And they looked at me like I was really weird. And, uh, but it just came from a place of like, I then stayed behind and just worked the whole time and, and went through it. Cause there was moments where I was like, this, this line doesn't make any sense to me. Cause it, I mean, cause the character's so dumb that sometimes he does defy logic so completely. <laughs> and so uh, there's moments where I'm like, I don't know how to weigh into making this line work. Cause I, cause even when you're, even when you're a dumb character, you can't, I don't feel like you can just say dumb things. 
because then you're not it's a caricature there's no depth to it there's nothing mm, mm. so whenever i had a line with neil where i was like that's so dumb it just makes almost like literally no sense i didn't want to just say it i want i needed to know that if anyone asked me what is neil thinking i knew so i had to come up with like a neil logic so when neil says things like oh well chicken nuggets are just like drugs it's like you're like, well, you're a moron. Of course, chicken nuggets. Are, but Neil finds chicken nuggets so delicious that they're almost addictive. So he's kind of thinking that okay, so that's how I can compare these things. And I, I really, I really love trainers so much that yeah, I'm kind of addicted to trainers. So yeah, trainers are a bit like drugs too. And uh, like just so, so, so many stupid things that Neil would come out with. I'd have to go, okay, what's what is Neil actually think, in his? How can I make sense of something so stupid? Um, and that's what I ended up doing a lot of the time. And um, I remember that day just being, feeling really uncomfortable and like, oh, I'm doing a bad job. Maybe they'll recast me or something. And so I just stayed behind working the whole time while the others went off and had a nice lunch together and stuff. Did you internalize that anxiety then? Uh, but obviously when you came back the next day, it was all good. But were you talking to anybody about this? You know, because you, you, some people when you come off the, a bad day at work, you'd get home and you'd speak to your partner or speak to your friend and be like, I just had a terrible day. I'm a bit yeah. worried. Did you keep it inside or did you have a chat with anyone? I think I did keep it inside. Yeah, I think I was just so kind of nervous about it. I mean, I'm much better about that stuff now because I think even, I mean, that was... 13 years ago, I think that we started the first series of images. So you think of how much socially has changed in 13 years, all the mm. different movements. And one of them definitely being, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And talking about mental health, particularly mental health in men as well. And so uh, I, I, I for sure think that I was internalizing that and not talking to anyone about it. Because again, if I'd have mentioned it, my fear would have been if I was mentioning that I was not confident in what I was doing or that I was unsure to the people I was working with, they may have looked at me and gone, yeah, you're not, are you? Um, you know, maybe we've made a mistake. So we'll, we'll recast, we'll get someone else in. That was my fear. Obviously that was never going to happen, but that was my, my fear at the time was that, you know, they, they might get rid of me. Fortunately, you became very, very close. And as you say, you spent a number of your uh, years um, in your acting career. Now having spent all, all this time with, that that group of lads and i imagine you're very very close now are you are you still in constant communications i said i mean it's not constant and, and it's it's that weird thing of like look we all get on very very well when we're together but i think people think oh well you were working with each other for years but the reality of the situation is we'd work with each other for six weeks mm. then not really see each other for a year uh, and a little bit of promotional stuff then we'd work with each other for six weeks and then not see each other for a year and so as much as we get on very well when we see each other. Uh, we, we're probably nowhere near as close as what the general public would obviously hope or want us to all be. Cause they're like, Oh, you guys is such a great laugh and you all hang out together. And, and one of the things I always found very, very funny was that uh, if someone stopped me on the street and was like, Oh, Neil in between us, blah, blah, blah. One of the first things that goes, where's Jay. And I'd be like, I don't know. I ain't spoke to him in six months, <laughs> but it's just that, that, that weird expectation that, you know, what they're seeing on TV must be so close to reality. Uh, and that even went as far as like, I remember when we did the first film, uh, we were asked by some of these super clubs in like Mallorca or Magaluf or wherever the hell we were, um, 
to come and like have a night and they was really surprised when we all went no <laughs> like we don't want to go and hang out in a club together we if anything we were like what we'll do is we'll probably go to a nice restaurant have a bit of wine and then get an early night's sleep because we're working um and you know but people just expected us i think to be very similar to what they saw on tv and i think in a lot of ways they felt quite confused when we weren't it's a strange one because it's a, it's a show that is so rewatchable, much like any sitcom. You know, you're, you're able to just binge them and they're not boring because everyone wants to laugh. You know, you wouldn't go, I wouldn't go downstairs and rewatch a BBC drama on repeat. Um, but with a, with, a, with, a, with a sitcom, you happily can. And that's why it's so um, kind of, you know, memorable, I suppose, because people will look at you and go, oh, you're clearly yeah. Neil, you're not Blake. Um, and that, yes. that's really difficult probably for you. So have you found it difficult then to shift that um, even today? Because as you say, that's 13 years ago now of your life. That's a long time, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, yes and no. Because in a lot of ways I could say, well, I've been able to do a lot of different work and it's not held me back too much. You know, I've, um, I've been able to slowly kind of kick the door in of drama. I, I, I think it, it wasn't always easy to do but I mean having done a few things like I've done like World on Fire and Trust Me and uh, an English Scandal and, uh, and and a couple of episodes of The Great as well recently and stuff so you know I've been able to to branch out from just doing comedy but then the flip side to that is that a lot of people do because they re-watch comedy in a completely different way so they, they would watch drama and comedy um as you say, something it's all—it's almost soap-like in the way that you can have these people in your living room or in your bedroom when you're falling to sleep or something like that, and just watch it again and again and again and again. So the character becomes what they think is reality, as opposed to the actor. And so, yeah, that 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 can be difficult at times to kind of convince people that you're not one character. But but on the flip side, I think. I've been very lucky to do a variety of different work and different characters. And so it hasn't held me back too much. So I like to think that it's more something that I would be worried about um, stopping me from, say, getting a role or something like that than something that's actually in reality stopping me. That's interesting. So uh, we're talking about the public there, but have you ever found the uh, the difficulty come in an audition process then? You know, if you walk into an audition room and has it ever been the casting director or a director going, oh, I know who you are now because of X. Does that, have you ever had that in, in, in a professional atmosphere or is that quite, quite, quite a different um, um, scenario? No, I don't know. I've not, I've never had that. I imagine that, you know, the casting directors know who you are before you're walking in the door. Mm. Um, so they're going to be prepared for it. So they're either getting you in because they like what you do in that one thing, or they've seen you do enough other stuff to warrant you being there for a completely different role. Um, whereas, uh, I suppose there might have been situations that I wouldn't have been aware of where, uh, a casting director or a director or producer that isn't aware of the other things I've done, uh, or doesn't have the imagination to see you in a different kind of light may very well have gone oh they they're trying to submit blake harrison for this role why would we have that guy from the in-between isn't it it's a completely different type of role but i, I like to think there's not that many people in our industry that, that would lack that the imagination to see mm. you as doing something else especially when you know a lot of time has gone by and i and i feel like i have been able to prove that i can do different things but but again those those are conversations you're not privy to so you can't really think too much about it 
as you say, a lot of time has gone now. Do you think it would stand up if uh, if there was some sort of remake or something? Remake? I don't know. I know they tried an American thing a while back that didn't <laughs> go down too well. Um, I don't know. I don't know about a remake. Um, I think, again, the world has changed a lot. A lot of people talk about, like, oh, the in-betweeners would never be made now because, you know, you you, you people are too offended or whatever. I, I don't believe in that because what I think the in I lo- what I like to think the in-betweeners was doing was going, these are idiot teenage boys and a lot of idiot, idiot teenage boys are the same and they're not necessarily always thinking about the best thing for other people. That They're quite self-centred um and they need to have their eyes opened up to the world especially if they've had quite a um, a closeted upbringing you know in kind of a very kind of white middle class suburbia then they don't necessarily always know what the world's about so they have stupid opinions and the most important thing to them is how they look to their more immediate circle of friends not always doing the right thing but doing the thing that makes them look best to their immediate circle of friends and it's it's a comment on that rather than anyone i think trying to say hey these are four people you should emulate i think if anyone thinks we should be emulating those guys i think they need to really look in the mirror and question their own iq because nothing about those boys should be emulated it's to be laughed at yeah, absolutely, absolutely. At the end of that that first block of six weeks f- filming, you were still um, still weren't signed, were you, as, as an actor? So what, what? No, I was. You were I, then. I, I was. So what happened was, is I'd done about two weeks filming, and the casting director, who's so lovely, Nadira Sikuma, she um, she just said to me, "Blake, you need an agent." And I was like, "Do I?" And she was like, <laughs> "Yes." She didn't call me a moron, but the yes was like, yes, you do. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. then. And she was really lovely and just um, set me up with two different agents uh, to, to meet up with. And one of them was Sarah McCormick at Curtis Brown, and she is still my agent to this day. And uh, so, yeah, and the meeting just went well. One thing that helped me was that um, the uh, – guys at Boark, the production company that made the show, had put together like a, I don't know if it was to get more finance or to, I don't know what it was, but it was like a two minute teaser trailer of what we'd shot in that first two weeks. Um, And I said, can I borrow it to show my, this woman I want to be my agent? And they went, yeah, sure, no worries. Sent it to her and she was like, oh, well, I can see what this show's about and I can see a little bit of your acting in it. So uh, she signed me and then and we've never looked back. And the rest is history. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's, um, let's transition out of that then because you have now, as, as you say as well, done some fantastic other roles, not, not, not just rooted in, in comedy. And I, I want to talk about World on Fire, in fact, because that's how oh. I managed to be introduced to you through, through a mutual friend of Jonah who you worked with in that, uh, in that show. What was that? tv drama like because that is a massive change from a sitcom that is probably sped through uh, some sort of filming process to then an enormous well no i wouldn't maybe not an enormous not quite a hollywood budget but you know a bigger budget with big effects yeah. and big um big production value what's that transition like then from a production like the in-between us to world on fire um it is very different i mean obviously it's not going from like no, from just one to the other. There's loads of things in of between, course. and you get to experience loads of different types of sets. But 
the, the the contrast I think particularly between these more big budget dramas and comedy in general is is vast um with comedy you're generally doing a, a much higher page count in the day so you've got a lot more to learn a lot more to prepare for and um I wouldn't say you generally get like less takes in the comedy per se but it just it, the day feels a lot quicker you you everything feels sped up everything's in a rush like nine times out of ten on the comedy sets that i've worked on is you know the start of the day feels relatively leisurely everyone's having a laugh and then by the end of the day everyone's getting a bit stressed out because you know there's not enough time to fit this in the way that we all want to fit it in and compromises must be made and with the the drama it felt less like that maybe because there was more budget to to you know, go over on a few days or, or to move things around if, if you didn't quite fit everything in. I mean, it's very possible that there was a lot of stress going on behind the scenes when, <laughs> when things weren't quite going to, to the timeline, you know, but, uh, but I felt very much kept away from that or, or, you know, you didn't notice it quite as much. And uh, you can just see from the scale of like the sets and stuff like that, the sets on World on Fire was incredible. You'd walk on and just be transported. They were absolutely amazing. And uh, it was just, I, I just look back on that job with so much fondness because it kind of just ticked every single box for me because not only was it a, a, a fantastic drama, which I was really happy to be involved in, but I love the character as well. Mm. And I got on so well with particularly Jonah and, uh, and Matthew Aubrey and, and Kel, Kel Spellman. Uh, and the four of us just had a lovely little gang together and we'd be hanging out all the time and, uh, and I think with a lot of like kind of war-based things, you can think, oh, well, a lot of the actors involved are going to be a bit alpha because it's all, you know, it's war and we're all kind of, you know, Marines or whatever it is. But the beautiful thing about being cast in something set in World War II and, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the reality of it was that a lot of these men weren't soldiers. They were postmen. They were teachers. They were milkmen. They were, you know, whatever it was that they were. And there were young men that were just told to be soldiers with minimal training and, and very little experience. Uh, but what that meant for us as a group of actors is, is that they cast it so well because they cast just regular guys. You know, none of us were particularly muscle-bound action heroes or anything like that. We were all just regular-looking blokes and, and there was no kind of alpha mentality on set at all. Everyone was just helping each other out and just having such a wonderful time filming. And then on top of that, the thing that I love so much about that show and, and, and shows like that is the action sequences because they are so much fun to film. To, and I, I have not done a huge amount of that before because there's, there's very little of that in comedy, you know. And so um, when we're having, you know, basically these like RPGs thrown at us or like these kind of bazookas filled with like rubble and dust and uh, rubber and all this kind of stuff to make it look like a mortar's just gone off. It really does get your heart going. Like it is genuinely a little bit scary at times, especially when you've got the added worry of like, oh God, if I mess this take up, like if I step in the wrong place or say the wrong thing, I've messed up the shot and I, and it, this is going to be like a, a 45 minute reset, which is going to really annoy people. So you've got the adrenaline of not wanting to get hurt, the adrenaline of not wanting to fuck it up. And that I think really leads to some good stuff because you, you forget about the acting side of it and you just, you just do it and you're just in it. And 
And I really love that. I'm a big fan of, of, of any kind of action sequence that you can just really fully commit to and, uh, and, and kind of forget yourself and forget where you are and just be in that moment. Yeah, it sounds very, very real. Yeah, exactly. As you say, the acting just goes out the window because it's, you know, if you're, if you're having all these uh, effects coming your way, yeah, you step a, to put a foot wrong and actually you're, you're, you physically could actually be uh, harmed as well. Yeah. Have you done many of that? Have you done much like kind of action sequency stuff around um, no, I actually have not. Not really. I've done sta- a lot of stage combat um, yeah. like in theatre, which I really enjoy. But that, I get because that's also very, very real. And if you, you screw something up, you know, you're going to watch 2,000 yeah, people hit you in the head, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, no, I think it's um, I would like to do more of it. But it's I think, as you say, it would definitely be the, the, the fear of the whole package that would really get the get the like the, the real good stuff i think not only have we, we we talked about some dramas and stuff i also i want to apologize i didn't i wasn't assuming that you went from in between us to world on fire i know that there's a whole oh, no, whole no, no, load no. of stuff that we haven't talked about uh, and of course you're, no, you're an incredibly no, experienced just, on, on no all. no no i didn't expect that so i just think when someone's listening maybe they would go oh that to that but obviously <laughs> the, the, the trend the transition is is always broken up which is why it's always difficult to talk about it in these things because someone will will assume that you've gone from one thing to another and it must be such a massive change. But actually, as in life, a lot of the time, it's very rare that you go from just one thing and then do a complete 180. It's a gradual turn and you're doing something else a little bit different, something else a little bit different. So for me, it's always, it's, it's difficult to always pick up on the differences between things because they've been diluted by periods of time and, and change and different things that have been going on. And that, that's the only reason I mentioned that. I wasn't in any way trying to highlight other work I've done because <laughs> like, no one gives a shit, to be honest. <laughs> Not getting your royalties through for something. <laughs> yeah, no. Let me just take you through my IMDb page, guys. <laughs> just, just so we don't miss a single thing out. <laughs> no, but let's talk about another another piece that you have done because you you've, you've as we say you, you've done the comedy work, you've done the drama work, but you've also done filmed comedy with a live audience, which also changes things oh, yeah. a lot, which is really interesting. And I really want to talk about that because that's something that I have never done, and I'm curious to how that changes your performance and and what you have to do as an actor to adapt to 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 that specific um, that specific scenario and setup. It is slightly odd at times. Um, for me, I think always lean towards it just being a TV thing because if you focus too much on the audience, and I feel like I've seen it in things, you can see it in other studio audience uh, sitcoms where I feel like they focus too much on the live audience because it's such a buzz, you know. You land the joke well and the audience is there laughing. It's, it's a real big buzz, you know. But the main reason you're doing it is not necessarily for the 200 or 500 people in the audience. It's for the hopefully millions of people watching at home. So I always think you have to tailor it more to the TV audience. Otherwise, the jokes could just get too big or the pauses too long or anything like that. And so I think always my personal thing is always maintain as if it's for the TV audience. There's certain things that you can't help but change, like like pauses. It's like, you know, in the in-betweeners, we were always told energy pace, energy pace, energy pace. That, that was it. It was like these are young lads chatting. It needs to be unbelievable. They're on each other's cues, like any brief pause will ruin it. The rhythm has to be so energetic and paceful. Um, 
Whereas when you're doing a studio audience-based sitcom, as much as you may want to keep that energy up and keep it pacey, the jokes have to land. You have to allow the audience live to laugh and then you have to pick it back up. So naturally there are dips that wouldn't be there in just a, a single camera sitcom and you have to you know, make sure you maintain an energy through a pause that uh, is weird. But again, it's, it's, if you've done enough theatre, then you'll be used to that as well. It's, so it's, it's that weird thing of tailoring your performance, I think, for a TV audience, but maintaining energy levels maybe like, like you would in a piece of theatre where you know as much as you want to carry on with the line, you have to allow that pause. You have to let the audience laugh, otherwise they're going to miss the next joke. And you have to come into the next line full of, the energy that you would have as if you haven't paused, you know, you have, uh, you know, being an actor, everyone knows that, you know, you're going to be seen in stuff. And as you say there, you're talking about being seen by literally millions of people in, in TV and, and stuff. Do you, uh, as an actor before a job, well, no, before uh, the show comes out or anything, do you ever have any um, sort of apprehension or, or worry as to what, how you're going to be received in your performance? Every single time. Yeah, uh, without a doubt, every single time. Um, You you know, I think it's probably, I I like to think it might be common, but I I definitely know it is of myself that, you know, you get imposter syndrome all the time. You know, uh, whenever I'm in a drama now, I'm always kind of like, oh, well, I hope they don't, you know, think, oh, well, he's, he's, I can't see him as anything other than Neil or or something like that. And, you know, you feel like, are you going to be, scrutinized in 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 an unfair way just because you might have done something different previously um and then even with with comedy like um a lot of times you can do a comedy and go oh god i hope people think i'm funny in it and believable in it and and all that and you're always fearful that you you're maybe not going to do a good job or people aren't going to receive you very well but that is just that's that's just the business that we're in and as much as i wish reviewers maybe were at times a bit kinder and i I have to say i I think i've been quite lucky i I don't feel like i've really been picked out for much negativity in my career but you can see it happen to a lot of people where you'll read a review for something and go that just seems really unfair and that or like they'll, they'll pick up on something that really has very little to do with someone's performance it's something completely foreign to that and uh and obviously in the days of social media as well, a lot of people will be thinking, how can I get people to click on my page or get people to click on this article? And generally, I suppose you would argue that this sitcom was good and Blake Harrison was fine in it, isn't going to get many clicks. Whereas this sitcom was tragic and Blake Harrison was shocking in it. And was that is going to go, Oh, how bad, what happened there? You know, that's going to get more, more clicks. So unfortunately we are living in a culture where it literally pays to be more negative in some ways. And that's a real shame, but that is just the way it is. And there's, there's nothing you can really do about that. A lot of times I think, you know, you just got to control the controllables in life. And if it's out of your control, you can worry about it if you want, but that's not going to do you any good. It's very difficult getting over that worry, though. Have you ever been in, uh, have you ever had had any of that kind of feedback, be that from um, critics or, or members of the public, where you've actually kind of, that self-doubt has rubbed off on yourself and that negativity has rubbed off on yourself? Can you remember anything specific? 
Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember. I, I, I'll tell you what was. I do remember one funny thing happening was that I remember some stupid reporter putting in a, a newspaper, like an online thing. It was back. I did a show called Prime Suspect 1973, and uh, it was a drama, like uh, a prequel to Prime Suspect, like a 70s based police drama. And um, they said that uh, oh, I, I, I was very distracted by Blake Harrison being in it with his uh, wig and fake moustache. And I was like, that's my hair and my moustache. <laughs> like, so <laughs> what on earth are you talking about? So I distracted you by having my hair longer and a moustache on my face. And for some reason, you decided in your head, because you'd seen me play a role where I was clean shaven all the time and much younger with short hair, you've decided with no research whatsoever that that's a wig and it's a must and it's a, a fake mustache and it's really distracting me from this whole show. When in fact, I'd literally done interviews talking about the fact that I had to have this, this long hair and, and a mustache for, for months. And I was getting people shouting 118 at me as I walked down the street. And I'd done that in interviews. So all you had to do was very quickly research, is that a fake moustache and a wig? And very quickly, you'd realise that it wasn't. So I'd already done interviews, taking the mick out of it. And, uh, and they said that the most distracting thing in it and the reason they couldn't enjoy it was because I was wearing a wig and a fake moustache and it was all my own hair. So again, <laughs> just people are just so dumb and lazy sometimes. And they'll be given a platform to speak about their opinions. I think it's just so bizarre. But again, it, there's not much you can do about it. You just have to just go, fair enough, mate, if that's what you think. Um, we'll just crack on. I can't remember what your original question was, but uh, I, I just had to digress onto that. That's, in, that's, that's hilarious. Though. So actually what they were saying was, it's, even, even now, now knowing that it was your real hair and real moustache, ultimately what they didn't like was this, <laughs> your own face and head. And that's just really insulting, plain rude. It's just plain rude. I mean, fair enough. I've not got the best looking face in the world, but you know, it shouldn't distract you from a TV show. I know. God, unbelievable. Now let's, let's look to the, to the future then, because you have been busy yourself. Um, you've made some short films and you've seen it. It's an incredible success winning awards with that as well. But what is, oh, yeah. um, what is in the, in the future for you then? Are you, are you wanting to do some more, more kind of directing and writing? Um, yeah, well, I mean, gosh, everything feels so up in the air at the moment and everything. So I mean, I, I was writing something that I was really getting very, very excited about. And because of COVID and the production company I, I was uh, with, uh, things seem to have got on, which means that things have stalled quite a bit and everything's got a bit quiet on that front. Um, and then in terms of directing, it's just kind of wait and see what comes in. I was really proud of the short film that I made with my wife because she wrote it and I directed it. And as you say, it's won a couple of awards and done really, really well. And people can find that on my Twitter page. I think it's um, in like the link or whatever it's called, Hooves of Clay. And it's a comedy that uh, is about modern day dating and kind of Tinder culture and, and stuff like that. But, always, but through a very kind of um, unexpected viewpoint, it, uh, you think you know what you're watching. It kind of feels like maybe like, an episode of girls or something for the first kind of five minutes or so. And then something incredibly bizarre happens and takes it down a completely different path. I always loved how dust till dawn did that dust till dawn. Like you, you, you watched the first kind of like 50 minutes of that movie. And it was kind of like a, a typical Tarantino, you know, 
crime caper, like this kind of kidnap movie or something like that. And then all of a sudden they get to this place where the vampires just start coming out of that. And, and the, unless you, if you didn't know anything about that movie and you just watched it, you would just be blown away by the fact that, hang on a minute, I thought I was watching one film and now I'm watching something else. Always loved that. And so that's what we did with, with Hooves of Clay. And I, I'm really, really proud of that. Um, and in terms of acting and stuff, obviously I was supposed to be working now and that hasn't happened because of COVID. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. But But as I said earlier, you know, you just you got to keep your fingers crossed in a lot of uh, ways and, and, and try and just stay positive with it and hope that, you know, something will eventually come along. That's the right thing for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you ever have the, um, the kind of, you know, I, I know that COVID is not going to be around forever, um, but would you ever, would you ever kind of consider just keeping busy doing something else? Or do you, are you a firm believer in thinking that you are an actor, you are a writer and you are a producer and filmmaker? Or, or would you ever look, look elsewhere, just out of curiosity? I don't know. I mean, I had weird moments in the first lockdown where I did think, God, I, I maybe would do, in a weird way, do you know what it is? Is that whole thing of like, uh, and again, talking about like mental health, how, how bad comparison is for your mental health. And I feel like I can fall victim to that from time to time where you're comparing yourself to your peers uh, a lot. Um, And during the first lockdown, because no one was working and you weren't seeing constant things on social media of of your, your peers doing things that you perhaps wanted to do, then you, I I didn't feel that kind of same uh, jealousy, I suppose is is the word to to look for with that and, and drive to sometimes go, oh, well, I should be doing this and I should be doing that. It felt a bit more chilled out and a bit more relaxing. And I was thinking to myself going, well, do you know what? If this is it, if the whole world completely changes and that <laughs> acting stops, <laughs> um, as much as I'll be really sad about that, I think in a weird way, it'll be slightly stress relieving and I'll, I, I will just find a way to do something else because my priorities will completely change. My At the moment, I and, and I always have been so dedicated to acting and making that work. And I know that if I wasn't able to do it, I'd be incredibly upset. You know, I'd find that incredibly difficult. Um, But if the whole world changed and I wasn't able to do it, and it was, again, it was something that it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. It wasn't something I was doing. It was the world has just kind of taken it away from you and and no one's doing it. No one's allowed to do it now. I'd probably be in the position like, well, my priority now is just providing for my family. That's that's all, the only thing I can do. So I think I would be able to move on and, and do something else just simply because my priorities would have would have shifted from, obviously I'm looking to provide for my family now, but you, I, I will also try and pursue a, a career that I want and I will turn down a job and turn down money in the short term to so that in the long term, I hope that I'm going to get to a position where, you know, I, I, I'm where I want to be. Um, but if, if, if that all gets taken away, then you're thinking, right, well, all I've got to do is, is whatever I can to, to put food in mouths and roofs overhead and, and that kind of more simplistic uh, thought process for me, I think uh, would be something that I could, I could maybe switch to. I don't. It's, it's a weird thing to think yeah. about, you know, the, the, yeah. a, a world where you just you're just not allowed to do where you want to do what you want to do. I don't know. 
I mean, fortunately, one thing, Blake, is for sure, is people like to consume uh, and the more streaming services available now. So I, I think you'll, you'll be all right. So don't you worry. I think we'll be okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> now, I have, I have two final questions. I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, the first one being, because I, I know that it's nowhere online and I wanted to see if you'd tell me. What is the group chat called with the boys in the in-betweeners? Oh, I'll, I'll never admit. Uh, to be honest, I, unless I get picked up my phone right now, I wouldn't know. Uh, it's not something that's kind of burnt into my brain. I, I'm not exactly sure uh, off the top of my head. But if I looked it up, I'm sure it would be quite rude and I would not tell you. <laughs> Good. And uh, the final question that I ask every guest that comes on, on the podcast is, what does the word headstrong mean to you? Um... Well, I suppose traditionally before, you know, uh, uh, listening to your podcast, I think that, you know, you would just think it's someone that's, that's very driven and possibly to the point of, of being quite stubborn in, in, in what they want to do and, and not veering off of a, a goal or a task. But I think for the purposes of this and when we're talking about mental health and stuff, I wonder if we can kind of transform it into uh, more being about about re- recovery in, in, in a way. And I, I mean that in the sense of just uh, coming back from, from defeats and, and downtimes. I think, you know, our, our minds aren't these kind of indestructible castles or something, you know, uh, there's going to be times where things are said to you or things happen to you where it's going to break down a, a wall or a turret or two or something. And uh you're going to need to rebuild it. And I think being headstrong, hopefully uh, to people can be something that's not necessarily about nothing bothering you or nothing getting you down, but it's about allowing yourself to feel the downtimes when they're there, but then, then picking yourself up and, and recovering and building something stronger than what was there before. And, yeah, I, I I like the idea of, of headstrong meaning an ability to, to to recover from from downtimes. You know. Yeah, thank you. I really I really like that that take on it actually, and and something that we haven't actually talked about uh, that much ever on on this platform is is recovery. Actually, that's really interesting. Um, Blake, look, I really enjoyed this um, this chat with you. Thanks so much for coming Me on. Too. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, all, all the best to to you and, uh, and your family. Stay safe. Uh, stay well. Uh, and look after yourself. Uh, and fingers you crossed, too, we'll man. see you in something soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. So you too. And that concludes this episode with Blake Harrison. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Blake. I think there was some seriously interesting content there and something that anyone can take away, but specifically some young actors about just maintaining that hope that there will be something in the future. I really enjoy that attitude. Again, thank you so much to you, the listener, for tuning in and clicking on Headstrong. It really means a lot that you continue to subscribe and listen. And if this is your first time, why don't you go check out some more of the other episodes with guests including Romesh Ranganathan, Jane Seymour, and also some amazing guests coming up, which I'm not going to disclose right now. Anyway, that's just about it from me. So thank you so much for listening in, and I will see you next week for another episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 